You know, we're continuing our sermon series, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, and this morning we're looking at this important passage from Luke's Gospel. I want to say a word about Luke's Gospel, his unique approach. Uh, Of course, we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means same. So they're very similar in the way that they tell this same old story of Jesus. John's gospel is more of a theological gospel in that it has a different kind of agenda other than the history um, and the accounting of the life of Jesus. That is what the synoptic gospels are all about. But we notice in Luke's gospel, Luke the great physician who wrote the book of Acts or the letter uh, to Acts as well, we notice that he has a particular bent towards society that is important for us to recognize. He's constantly lifting up what in his day would be seen as the misfits or the lesser thans. And he's raising them to the place in the story where Jesus interacts with them. He's often the one who lifts up the leper or the tax collectors or Samaritans and especially the women in Luke's gospel take center stage time and time and time again. In Jesus' day, for a man to speak to a woman in public was considered to be uncouth at best. And a misfit, as far as culture was concerned, would also be considered to be kind of off limits. A leper, a Samaritan. You just didn't talk to tax collectors, for example. And even speaking to a woman or uh, the other misfits that we have mentioned uh, who was not a spouse or a daughter in the privacy of a home was not the norm. And yet we see in this particular passage Jesus uh, with these familiar sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, the, the sisters of Lazarus, He's speaking to them in the privacy of their home, which makes us think that uh, Jesus, in fact, saw them more as family than he saw them as acquaintances. You know, I want to say this morning, when we look at the story of Mary and Martha, one of the first lessons I think that just jumps out at us is that these two persons were different personalities. They were not all the same, right? Mary and Martha, we we don't know exactly their birth order, but it seems like Martha may be the oldest by the way that she's so attentive to detail. We we don't know that, but we we do recognize both in this story and the story of the raising of their brother Lazarus from the dead, the, the differences in the way that their personalities reveal. You know, years ago, and when I was serving the church in Houston, Um, I taught a large Sunday school class called the Adelphi class, and we'd have about 150 on a Sunday morning. And and one of those class members was a man named Dr. Roger Berkman. And Dr. Berkman, um, he he was in the Air Force when he developed um, a psychological um, 
lifestyle grid. It was a, a personality profile of sorts that was color-coded in very detail. He did it for the government. He was, of course, trained as a psychologist. But for the last um, 75 years, this company has worked with Fortune 500 companies all uh, over the world, literally, in their unique approach to personality profiles. Now, I want to just mention a few things and not go into the depths of this personality profile. But uh, I want to say that for uh, the years that I knew Roger, it was just a delight to be with him. He was so laid back, but yet so professional. He was so um, passionate about this tool that he felt like helped so many people, and I know it does and did uh, back then. I used it often when I was talking to uh, uh, couples who were about to get married about the differences of their personality and what their needs were, so on and so forth. But I first want to say uh, that his grid, the reason I think that it was so popular was because it was color-coded, and a lot of people get into that. So I think we have um, the lifestyle grid and living color that's going to come up, and I'll explain the different quadrants of this, um, of this grid. The red is the action-oriented person. This is the person who um, is very strong-willed, a person who is about doing and getting the job done. Do you know people like that? And, and then Jesus was, uh, uh, or, or the second is the detailed planner. That's the yellow. And the detailed planner is the I-dotter, the T-crosser. Do, do you know people like that? You know, the detail planner thinks through in great detail and wants things done neatly, systematically, and orderly. I'm not going to have you raise your hands if this fits, okay? And, and the third personality style is in the green up there. And the green is the enthusiastic salesperson. Uh, this is Donna Whitehead. Okay, we'll go on. This is a people person par excellence who doesn't always have a plan, but always knows that they can make the sale to the person about just about anything. And the fourth personality style suggested by Berkman's profile is the artistic uh, uh, poetic philosopher symbolized in the blue. This person is more soulful, a little bit more tuned in to the beauty and the reverence and the solitude of life. Now, Berkman's much more complicated than just this simple explanation because we have a usual behavior and then we have needs that could be different and then we have interests that could be different in different quadrants as well. But I love the way he explained this and I don't want you to ever forget it. He talked about cats. He said the problem in, in this scenario is, is that, that we have nine cats in a house and the task is to get the cats out of the house. How do you do it? Now, the action-oriented person has a way. that He picks up a broom or she picks up a broom and she starts running those cats out saying, scat cat, scat cat, get out of the room, get out of the room. The detailed planner, on the other hand, numbers the cats, one, two, three, four, all the way through nine, in calligraphy, and puts little tags on their collars, and then cuts nine neat little holes in the wall and wants cat number one to go out cat door number one, number two, number three, number four. That's the way the detailed person gets rid of the cats. 
And then the enthusiastic salesperson says, oh, no problem, I can handle that. It's a piece of cake. And the enthusiastic person uh, opens all the doors and all the windows in the house and gets some warm milk and some cat food and says, here, kitty, kitty, here, kitty, kitty. And the thoughtful person in the blue raises the question, what on earth am I doing worrying about cats? Now, with that in mind, I hope that serves as a great backdrop for you to think in terms of Mary and Martha. This isn't the first time they've had a personality difference and quarrel about it. This is just another time, and it takes place in the presence of Jesus. See, Jesus was coming to their home, which I think was familiar to him. It wasn't the first time he was in the home of Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters. And, and when he enters the home, he, he's always with his disciples, right? So it's not just treating the guest Jesus, but it's how you respond in hospitality to the entourage. So Jesus is coming for dinner, and Martha is so excited. Since daybreak, Martha's been sweeping and scrubbing and dusting and checking recipes, darting in and out of the kitchen, frantically preparing for Jesus. And then Jesus arrives. And look what happens. Mary whisks him and takes over the role of hostess as she brings him into the room and sits him in the comfortable chair. You know, there's not a television to turn on. It's, a, it's all about visitation, right? And so Mary's going to take on the role of the hostess, and she does that quite well. She positions herself at the feet of Jesus, and she asks those probing questions that will allow Jesus to share his heart. Drinking in every word she is. And meanwhile, Martha's preparing the meal, polishing the silverware, cutting up the fruit and vegetables, checking um, minute by minute to all of the details, but there is a problem. Martha's working feverishly and seething inside. Indignation mounts. And finally, she's unable to contain herself. I mean, if it were just the two of them, there'd already be a fight going on, as there had been many times. But Jesus was in the room, right? I mean, you got a guest in the house, so your behavior's a little different, especially if the guest is Jesus. But she can't take it any longer. So Martha bursts out of the kitchen and she said, Look at this, Lord. I'm having to do all the work here. Don't you care that my sister Mary has left me to serve alone? You get on to her now. Give her a good chewing out, Lord. She deserves it. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, don't be so worried and troubled about so many things. Relax, lighten up. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion which shall not be taken away from her. You know, not for one minute should we conclude 
that Jesus prefers the thoughtful thinker blue over the red, hardworking doer. That's not the point. If Mary had been seething about Martha working so hard in the kitchen and not being where she was at the feet of Jesus, where Martha should have been, then that lesson would have probably been to Mary instead of Martha. Do you get it? The lesson and what Jesus is saying to Martha is about what he sees in her at that time that is killing her spirit and for sure killing her spiritual experience with the Lord and with her sister. Let's look at the dangerous attitudes that we find in this particular instance, instance with Martha as well as ourselves, and as well as what we observe sometimes in others. When Jesus looked at Martha that day, he saw deep down inside of her a dangerous attitude of resentment. Now, now whether this resentment had been persistent or whether it was just in the moment, Jesus wanted to point it out to her. You have to get beyond resentment. Martha was resenting her sister, Mary. And there is nothing more destructive to our spiritual lives than resentment. You know, it's very close to what is in the Ten Commandments, envy. It's about, you know, wanting what someone else has in the moment or what someone else has, period. And it can absolutely ruin your life, and Jesus knew it. This kind of seething anger, this kind of simmering of, of resentment can boil over and destroy relationships. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks repeatedly about the dangers of resentment. He says, in effect, beware of brooding, seething anger. Beware of resentful gossip. Beware of contemptuous resentment, uh, a tone, an attitude that can destroy relationships. All of these are murderous and devastating to our souls. Now that's how resentment affects us. And, and that's why it's so dangerous. And that's why Jesus points it out, both to Martha and to Mary. Because no doubt Mary had resented Martha from time to time too. I mean, they are sisters. And he wanted to make sure that he made the point. Don't be resentful toward another. Now, now, the other issue I think that Jesus is dealing with here is an issue that is nearly equally devastating to our spiritual life, and that is narrowness. Narrowness. Martha has a narrow perspective in this instance, and she thinks her way is the only way. 
You know, Martha's view has become so narrow that she can't see any other way to receive the master but her way. She's blind to the miracle of uniqueness. And instead of her seeing um, Mary as a teammate, and I mean, what's Jesus going to do? Sit in the living room and twiddle his thumbs? There's no television. You can't watch Wheel of Fortune. Mary's taking on a role of hospitality, just as Martha is. The roles are different. They're, they're unique in their roles. You know, how often I have seen a narrow attitude cause problems in relationships, in marriages, in groups, in churches, in families. Some think that their religious experience or their political experience is the only valid one. And they try to force that or try to upplay it with others as it's, only, it's the only right approach. Now, we know better than that when we stop and think, really. But so often we get sucked into that notion, that narrowness notion that our way is the only way. And if you don't think my way, it's the highway for you. Get out. It's simply a destructive way to deal with relationships, with families, with groups, with churches. It's destructive when we think our way is the only way. What I love about our church and United Methodist congregations in general is that we are made up of an eclectic congregation, pluralistic congregation. We're all different kinds of people, and we're brought together. The tie that binds is the one thing. The one thing. The one thing. You know, in 2011, we... We, we had a worship service here on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. It was a Sunday. And those of you who were here know that this room was packed like Easter. We had members of a Jewish congregation, an Islamic congregation in our midst. We had a female rabbi who brought a 10-minute message. We had a, an imam who knelt at the foot of the cross at the altar and shared in melodic prayer. And then I had a 10-minute sermon from this pulpit as well. You know, I noticed as we were getting ready for the service that there, there was one couple that came in the back door here and came and sat down about eight or ten pews, and they sat there and... I saw them look at the bulletin, and he said something to her, and they got up and left. Well, I had heard in the days that followed that there was some concern on their part, and so I set up a time when I could have breakfast with them. 
And I remember what the man said to me. He said, when we came into this church, they had just joined the church not long ago or before from a Bible church, and they were excited to be here. They were in a class that I had been teaching to, and, and I had developed a relationship with them. But, but he said, when we came into worship and we sat down and we saw that there was a, a, a Muslim and a Jew going to be part of the service today, we decided that this was no longer a place for us. That was hard to hear as a pastor. Because this couple that I'd been cultivating in a sense, and they had joined the church, and I had developed a relationship with them, hadn't been here but really a matter of weeks before they decided that this is not a place for us because of the statement of inclusivity and the statement that we were trying to make that 9-11 was not about religions, it was about fanatical, murderous behavior, which is an important distinction in our world today. You know, we don't understand that God is big enough to relate to us differently, individually, uniquely, and personally. You know, so often narrowness leads us to the place of being a judge. And the Lord doesn't need any more judges. The Lord needs more witnesses to his love and to his wideness, his beautiful inclusion of all of his children. You know, this past week we honored those who lost their lives in 9-11 on the 20th anniversary. It was a painful remembrance, but yet had some of those elements of healing as I watched some of the speeches and heard some of the, the talk around what happened on that horrific day. I was watching a, a news story this past week, happened right here in Dallas. It was 10 days after 9-11-2001 when a man walked in a convenience store with a shotgun. And he shot three persons who were working there because he presumed they were Middle Eastern Muslims. Two of them died. One of them was critically injured. His name was Reis Boyan. He was Bangladeshi. As were the other two. He was murdered in that convenience store because of the way he looked and what was assumed about him. Now get this. A white supremacist named Mark Stroman was the one who pulled the trigger that day. Race lost his, his eye being shot in the face with a shotgun. And he came very close to losing his life. 
But, but he tried to stop. In fact, he sued the state of Texas to try to stop the execution of Mark Stroman. And as the story went, uh, Ray shared that he had talked to Stroman on the telephone the day of his execution. Race had a chance to, to tell him that he, he, again, he told him before, but that he forgave him and, and he didn't hate him. And Stroman thanked Race for his efforts and told him that he loved him. Now, Reyes said this, and I think we have a picture of him. I ask people to please treat everyone as humans first, regardless of what or, or who they are, where they came from, who they love, who they worship. Stand up against human suffering regardless of the victims. Do not pick and choose. The problems persist in our society because we do not stand up for each other. In this episode with Mary and Martha, Jesus is saying, in essence, beware of dangerousness that you have. It can devastate your soul. There's only one thing, one thing that we need to be brought together around. And if we truly are this one thing, saves us from narrowness, from, from disrespecting another. You know, I guess when we all start out, when we get out of seminary, uh, especially if we're young like I was at 22, I was entering seminary and at 25 I was getting out and thought I was a preacher and, and I remember some of those early sermons oh bless those people who had to hear them but there's a time-honored story about a young preacher fresh out of seminary who was called to his first pastorate who was in a small East Texas church and having to preach every Sunday was quite challenging. I mean, it's somewhat of a shock. I mean, preaching, somebody told me once, was like uh, delivering a baby on Sunday and finding out on Monday you're pregnant. And it just continues. And when you're just out of seminary, Brother Goni, you know, that, that's kind of a shock that you got to be up for a sermon week after week after week after week. And so it was accounted by those in the congregation who were quite used to having student preachers. They knew uh, what it was like to have someone just out of seminary, but it, it seemed the young preacher's sermons were just like the lectures that he had been taught in class, and he was just kind of uh, making them into a sermon and kind of delivering a very heady, very academic kind of sermon week after week after week. 
He was sharing what he was taught, but not really what was in here. And the congregation, used to having fresh young seminarians, was really in a quandary as to what to do to help him, you know, to help him get better, to help him be received better. And, and you know, they didn't want to, to get into this kind of matches. We want our sermons to be like this. And because somebody else would say, no, we want them to be like this. And somebody else, well, well, we want them to be like this. So months went by as the congregation waited for the young man to kind of settle into his own unique style, and it, it, it just wasn't happening. So one of the lay leaders who was in charge on Sundays of getting the sanctuary all ready for church, he put a little note on the pulpit, and the note said, John 12, 21. So when the young preacher got to church that morning, he got into the pulpit. Nervously, he was getting his sermon all, uh, all ready, and he noticed that there was that little note that said, John 12, 21. And so curiously, he picked up his Bible, and he thumbed to John 12, 21. And it simply said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You know, sometimes we need to sit at the feet of Jesus and stop what we are doing. Not, not to change our personalities. But to think about what it means to have the living Lord in my heart. How does that impact my doing how does that impact my thinking? How does that impact my organization? How does that impact the way that I sell? It's the one thing. Jesus. You know, sometimes we need to stand before Jesus and let Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, correct us, convict us, of some wrongdoing or something that we're doing that can be destructive to our spirit, to our soul. And, and when we sit at the feet of Jesus and allow Jesus to speak to us, to make us better, to make us more at peace, to make us more loving, to make us more full of joy, we have to do what the Lord says to do. And put away practices that the Lord says, this is leading you in the wrong direction. In the Mary Martha story, Jesus is teaching not just them, but us an important lesson about inner attitudes. He's saying, beware of resentment. Let me help you with that. Let me help you get that resentment out of who you are. It, it's killing you. He, he's saying, beware of narrowness. Your, your view of thinking your way is the only way and everyone needs to think alike is not the Lord's view. 
He sat with the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. He sat with his sisters and brothers who were Jews. He sat with the adulterous woman. He, 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 he sat with those who were so righteous in a good and holy way. He wants to say to us, beware of narrowness. It, it's killing you. And be aware, be aware of the Lord's presence, my presence, Jesus would say, and our focus on who Jesus is. For Jesus is the only thing that ultimately we should be concerned with. Who he is, what he is about, and who we are in our own uniqueness, living into that which Jesus has for us, brings us the peace that passes all understanding. Jesus will help us choose the way of grace and love and compassion all the time. The only thing is to keep the one thing, the one thing, the main thing, Jesus. Amen.